Hey guys, it's Sarah. During this time of social isolation, we've got no sports to watch, but ESPN podcasts are posting a ton of new content from all your favorite shows. Last week, new episodes of ESPN Daily, The Woj Pod, Hoop Collective, First Draft with Mel Kuyper Jr. and Todd McShay, The SV Pod, Ariel Helwani's MMA Show, The Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny, Baseball Tonight, and more. You can listen to all of these and more wherever you get your podcasts. Life today is kind of a lot. It forces us to always be on. But every now and then, it's important to just stop, crack open a mountain cold Coors Light, and chill. So when you choose to turn off, choose the one beer that's made to chill. Coors Light, mountain cold refreshment made to chill. It's brewed with a three-step cold process, cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. So it's actually made to chill. The mountains on Coors Light's cold activated bottles and cans turn blue when chilled to perfection. Born in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in 1978, Coors Light is refreshing, crisp, and only 102 calories. That's why Coors Light is the one to choose when you need a moment of chill. When you want to reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. You can have Coors Light delivered by going to getcoorslight.com and finding local delivery options near you. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. That's what she said. Conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name's Rex Chapman, and right now I'm deathly afraid that everyone I know is going to die from coronavirus. All right. Well, honestly, fear is natural. It's uncertain time for all of us, but I think we just have to hope that our friends and loved ones are following precautions, are listening to shelter in place orders. And being safe. And if they're doing everything they can to avoid getting infected and spreading it, then we just have to be patient and wait. we got to wait for the experts to tell us what to do, how we can help. And in the meantime, I would say, Rex, meditation is a great thing to do to calm your anxiety. Getting in workouts at home. Keep your body moving. Clear your head. Make sure to put down your phone. Shut off the news. Read a book. Clean your house. Listen to music. Do anything to let your brain take a break from the constant stream of news and information. It's okay. It's it's actually probably necessary to take your mind off COVID-19 for a little bit and do something that brings you a little joy and peace and stillness. It'll be okay. Just got to be safe and smart. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Rex Chapman, former NBA player, viral superstar, and the host of Blocker Charge on Adult Swim. He was selected with the eighth overall pick in the 88 NBA draft, became the first player ever signed by the Hornets, had a long, very popular career that involved two dunk contest appearances before he retired. After retirement, he got addicted to painkillers. He talked about cleaning himself up and becoming one of the most popular and beloved follows on social media. Uh, so we get into that NBA career, why he compares his college experience to Johnny Manziel, the emergency appendectomy that changed his life, how Oxycontin felt like a cure but was really a massive problem for him, and why he will struggle to watch the ESPN E60 about his life. Also talked about the guys who help him find his crazy popular Twitter videos and more. I really love this conversation. I think you're going to love it, too. Oh, and by the way, before you listen to this interview, I kept saying that Rex Chapman's story was going to be a 30 for 30. That was a brain fart by me. It was an E60, and it just ran. So I'm sure you can find it uh, online, and I think they'll probably be replaying it on ESPN as well, since no sports, so we're probably going to play it a lot. Uh, but it was, an, uh, it was an E60 that Rex Chapman was a part of. That's what she said. Awesome to get to actually talk to Rex Chapman 
not in person, obviously, uh, in shelter, in place, but at least verbally. I've been following uh, the viral superstar, former NBA player, on Twitter for some time, and I, I think my reaction to seeing him on Twitter was similar to everyone else. Now, Rex Chapman, that's just the same name as that basketball player, but it can't be him. This is a different guy. And then sort of being like, wait a minute, that is the former NBA player, Kentucky <laughs> superstar. He now does sort of an America's Funniest Home Videos vibe plus dogs, bruh, on Twitter. Like, how do we get here? And I've been thinking about having him on the pod ever since I started to have the head scratching of how did we go from one to the other. So I'm super excited to talk to you, Rex. But I want to start all the way back at the beginning. Tell me about where you grew up and what kind of kid you were. Great. Uh, thanks for having me, Sarah. This is awesome. I've been a fan of yours for years now. Um, okay. I'm born and raised in, in Kentucky. I was born in Bowling Green late 60s and uh, raised in Owensboro, Kentucky, western part of the state. A uh, great, a terrific place to grow up uh, for playing sports. It's a town of about 60,000 people, which at the time, big for around here, probably the third largest city in the state at the time. And then um, went to Kentucky, you know, UK from there, and then on into the NBA. That's it. So were you an only child, and, and did you play a lot of sports, nope. or were you just focused on basketball? No, I have a younger sister, Jenny. She's about a year and a half younger than I am, uh, grade behind me in school. And no, it was just us two. My father was a basketball coach for for a long time, uh, high school, and then on uh, won a couple of titles with Kentucky Westland College Division II school in Owensboro uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And uh, my mom... um, she was around all the time, went to all of our sports, all of the, all of our stuff. Yes, I played every sport. If it, if it had, you know, if it was competitive and some kind of sport, I was pretty good at it. I could pick mm-hmm. it up, no problem. Um, but I played football. I played baseball. I was probably a better, I don't know, maybe a better football player there for a little while. I really liked football, but I was a late bloomer. And once I got into middle school, the kids were way bigger than I was. I was still, I guess, I was probably five, seven, five, eight, all the way through my freshman year in high school. And then, wow. yeah, and right around that time, I stopped playing football and, and baseball and just was like, okay, I'm just going to play basketball. And my dad was like, well, he's like six six, And uh, people thought I was going to grow, but nobody knew. I remember telling him, I think I'm just going to play basketball. He was like, are you sure? <laughs> so uh, I was like, yeah, I do. I like it. I like it a lot. And of course I was, I was kind of a nut about, about playing. I just was, I was addicted to basketball for sure, for sure. But I, I did. I, I loved it. I don't know if it was completely healthy for me all the time. Yeah, I want to get into that. It's funny you said that because my dad's father is 6'6". Six, six. My dad is 6'4". And he was about six feet till he it was 16, and then all of a sudden, snap your fingers four inches. And that's a big difference, uh, particularly yeah. for someone who loves basketball the way you did. Um, unhealthy in what ways? Because I know sometimes having a parent who was a coach and was a star in their own right can absolutely help you develop, but also be a little bit um, – sometimes you, you, you get a little bit over it early because it feels like too much pressure. Yeah, I never felt that. I was the other guy. You know, in retrospect, I did. I wanted his approval, but he almost never saw me play. His games were, I bet he didn't see 10 of my high school games. 
but you know, I grew up going to his practices. I would walk from grade school down to where he was coaching and do my homework real fast so I could watch his basketball practices. And um, he ended up coaching a guy named Jeff Jones, played at Virginia with Ralph Sampson, was Ralph's point guard the whole time he was at Virginia, and he's a coach uh, in college now at Old Dominion. So I was around good players and, and quality coaching from a young age, but uh, he, he never pushed me to play. I just I liked it. I and then once I started, you know, I could always kind of play just from a young age. Uh, probably once I started, you know, seeing that I was pretty good at it, it made me feel good. And we moved around a little bit when I was young. And I, I remember I hated going to new schools and making friends. And mm. I just knew that I just knew, though, that once we got to P.E., I would have a lot of friends. And right. So I based my right. worth forever on just my athleticism and and being able to run and jump I think why would you say that sometimes it was bad for you to be obsessed with basketball well I I just think that I there I there was virtually no balance in my life it was all that you know for from the time I was young um it was just all all consuming. I I wanted to play. If I wasn't playing, I, I if I couldn't find people to play with, I was playing on my own. I was all riding all over town trying to find a game. You know, it wasn't like now you had guys who work who work you out. Now you just had to go play, find a gym. So I was obsessed with that. I loved it, and nobody, you know, of course, nobody thought it's bad for him, and it it wasn't. It was just that I didn't really have any other balance in my life. I that makes once sense. I got. Once I became older, got to college, and the guys on my team, even the guys my age, 18, they could all get into the bars around town in Lexington. And I didn't drink. I would like to go with them, though, and, and watch them, you know, be foolish. And, you know, plus, hey, all the girls are in there. I'm, I'm a college guy, a college kid. I want to go in where all my other college students are. And the second I would get to the bar, they would say, Hey, Rex, you know, if we let you in here, somebody's going to call the cops. We're going to get raided. So I could never get into parties in, in college. And just I'd ended up having a key to our coliseum. And I'd go back and shoot ball after games or, you know, and I, I had plenty of fun chasing girls and doing all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't a, a normal existence. And, you know, then I left college, went to Charlotte, and it was kind of the same. In that yeah. So we'll get to that was, really, really quick. Oh, okay. I want to go back to yeah. I want to go back to Kentucky because for those okay. who are either younger and don't remember King Rex um, mm-hmm. or, or or aren't familiar, you were a big deal at University of Kentucky. You were sort of viral before viral even happened. It's <laughs> it, I'm trying to think of someone modern day. Um, I and, can. You know, maybe it's I like it's Zion Williamson, right? Like nope. if, if, no, if you're saying think. you can't go to a bar, you know? Well, I think the the one that you could come closest to would be Johnny Manziel. Ah, you know, okay. a few years ago, right. that sort of hysteria. Now, I wasn't. The thing was, I was I was not doing all the stuff he he was doing at that age. I, I just wasn't. I was, but. You know, I can only imagine in this day and age if there were social media, you right. know, going around. I, oh, I would have hated it. I'd have hated it. But you were well known enough and you were popular enough on campus and in the surrounding area of Kentucky. You had the swagger and the game 
And it made you sort of famous enough on campus that you literally weren't able to go out to bars because, you know, people knew that's Rex. We know how old he is. We know what year he is. And it wasn't the same for any of your teammates. Very true. And and in fact, you know, because I started, I guess, in Kentucky, you know, I became known. No, nobody's famous in Kentucky. We don't put out famous people. But we <laughs> borrow them for a few years. We borrow them for a year here at UK and send them on and then they're ours forever. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. But from the time I was about 15, you know, their words started spreading around. Yeah, they got a good player down in that part of the state, that type of stuff. So I was known around here. But then, you know, I grew. I grew and my athleticism kind of came together and, um, uh, you know, made the McDonald's team and was an MVP at five star and, you know, was a good was a really good high school player. Then I got here and to UK and I think my dad had prepared me in one way, extremely well for playing college basketball, no matter how good I became in high school or how, how good people thought I became, he always reminded me, Hey, you couldn't start for me right now. And he, he <laughs> was right at Kentucky Westland. Cause I would play against, I would play against those guys in the summer up until the time I was probably a junior in high school and they would kick my ass. I mean, grown men, you know, well, they were in college, but, and I deep down knew it. I knew that everything that anybody, any coach was telling me was, Hey, you know, you're going to come in here and play and start and all that. I also knew that it was going to be way different when I got there and that the guys I was going to play against, they were McDonald's all Americans four years older than me. So when I got to school, it was easier than what I thought. The actual playing part of it, the lifting, the class, the all of that stuff was awful. I, I hated it all. Being on campus was was a circus for, you know, I was there for two years. But the basketball part of it, the actual game part of it, the practice part of it was way easier basketball-wise than what I had anticipated. We played, you know, one of my first games in college, we played against Steve Alford and Indiana, and they won the title that year somehow. He was a senior, I was a freshman, and I'd been watching him play college ball for three years. We played him like, I don't know, our fifth or sixth game my freshman year at their place. He got, I don't know, 30, I got 30, and I just remember them talking about him. He was going to be the player of the year. That At that point, I thought, and I've told Steve this, we're friends. <laughs> I said, but at that point, I thought, you know, maybe I can play in the NBA because he was being projected <laughs> as an NBA player. And so. Um, I'm sure he loved to hear that. Uh, yeah, beat, beating yeah. your ass just made me think, you know, right. what, I got something here. <laughs> well, no, they beat us in overtime. They beat us in overtime. But then, you know, shortly after that, right after that, we played Louisville on national TV a week or two later. And. Louisville had won the title the previous year and Louisville was my dream school growing up. And I almost went there. I, I, I committed there and ended up flip-flopping anyway. So, um, but we played Louisville and you remember back then, if there was a game on Saturday or Sunday, it was, you know, everywhere. And it wasn't just a, you know, usually a regional game. If it was on CBS, it was on all over the country. Well, this was a CBS game you know, middle of the afternoon on a Saturday, Kentucky versus Louisville, big game for national audience. And we beat the shit out of them. And I, <laughs> I went off, you know, 
scored a bunch of points and we blew them out. We beat them by 35 at their place. And so that sort of, you know, that kind of elevated the, the national view that I yeah. think those, those couple of games. Yeah. So you become sort of known uh, nationally at Kentucky. You get the name King Rex, but in the meantime, your experience there was pretty lonely. You spent most of your time practicing, shooting, resting, sleeping. Um, and honestly, chasing girls. I mean, when I, and when I, yeah. I, yeah. And when I think back, you know, it was either, it was one of those things, sleeping, chasing girls or playing basketball. That's it. That, you know, the class I was getting done, but it was not something I was really, and I was fortunate in that regard. I was able to pretty much cruise through most of the basic stuff. There were very few, you know, a couple classes I really had to apply myself in here, but that part of it was not the most difficult. It was just difficult socially. I felt, I, I, and I still do. I, I've always had some social anxiety. I remember being in high school and at the mall with my buddies. We were 15 or 16. And the, a group of students from an opposing school came up. And, you know, a couple girls. And we're kind of, oh, we're all just teenagers. And a couple of the girls came over and they asked me for my autograph. And I thought they were joking around. and But I didn't really know. And I didn't even have an autograph. I, I you know, <laughs> I just signed my name. So I signed my name <laughs> on it and, and I gave it back to them and they went over, um, back over to their, you know, their crew, 10, 15 people from Davis County high school and got back over there and, you know, they get in a little circle and gave them to the boys and then the boys ripped it up and they all went, yeah, you know, so that shit was confusing to me. It was funny. It was funny. I get it. We all laugh, but that part of it was kind of confusing for me. Yeah. So, you know, I was listening to the ESPN Daily interview about the 30 for 30 that just came out about you. And one of the things that was talked about was that you kind of thought that you were just resting and it was natural for an athlete. And maybe some of your social issues made you a little bit less likely to be out and about. But it was really depression sort of disguised as rest, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think so. When you got out of Kentucky, you're in the NBA, you're living out this basketball basketball dream did it get better as you were older and traveling around and you weren't kept out of bars and stuff or did it did it compound in the nba you know that's a really that's a really fantastic question and and the only thing i can say i didn't really notice it i i didn't really notice any of it until i was late in my career so 28 or 29 i would in the summers i was running from it with you know, I played horses every day of my life for 25, 30 years. When I say that, I gambled on horses. Middle of uh, December, we had an off day in New York. I would go to Aqueduct, dressed in the snow for the snow, and sit out there for nine races. So I just went from one thing to another. In the summer, I'd play golf and play horses and, and work out. And so I was always sort of cross-addicted to whatever or – just changing, trading one thing for another. Um, I was just trying, I think trying to also feeling guilty for feeling depressed, I think, because on, there was such a stigma back in the day about being depressed that, you know, if you admitted that, then people were like, what do you have to be depressed about? And it's not like that, you know, as we, I think we're, we're starting to know. So I think I was always just kind of 
trying to make myself feel better in the moment, in the moment, in the moment, because it, it would get lonely in my head. So, um, and you know, I, I, but to answer your question near the end of my career, I kind of realized that I was starting to, I, that maybe I was depressed and, you know, doctors, the physicians you go to see, they'll be like, well, this medicine might work for you. Now here's the rub. That was something I just wasn't willing to do as an athlete. I, I knew, I knew how focused I had to be out there and I couldn't take anything that was gonna, I, I didn't think I could take anything that was going to take any kind of edge away from me. So I, I didn't take any sort of, uh, medication like that while I was playing professional basketball, nothing. And I, and fortunately for me, and it's kind of strange, I wasn't, a, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't have any drop of alcohol till I was 22. And when I did, it was like a Midori sour or some bullshit <laughs> fruity drink. Yeah. yeah. Slow gin fizz or some shit. Sex on the beach. Um, Yes, exactly. And then I graduated to a Mai Tai or some something like that. But <laughs> Sounds um, like me currently. Yeah, so, Just like whatever yeah, tastes right. the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um yeah, so I didn't have any of that stuff while I played and thank goodness. And then thank goodness the whole time I later on I started taking the pain medication, I didn't drink either. So but yeah, no, I just didn't as an athlete, um and I, I know a lot of guys feel this way, you know, because come on, man, there are so many of us playing professional sports. And I know in the NBA now, they there's a mental health professional with every team, which is a great start. But there's so many guys that I know that, you know, just are bipolar or, you know, have some sort of personality issue or depression, some kind of mental illness that, you know, I'm sure medication would help. But it's just, it's so tough to try to get guys to realize that while they're playing. Yeah. So you didn't take the medicine that they recommended for the depression issues, but no. late in your career, you suffered, uh, you had to get emergency appendectomy and that's where the other controlled substances started to become a problem. Yeah. Yeah. They had, um, so I had probably seven sur surgeries my last four years of playing and all orthopedic things, you know, random thumb wrist, uh, ankle, just random orthopedic stuff. And, um, I'd never, I'd never taken the pain medic medicine because I knew I needed to get back out there and play and I needed to know how my body felt. And I didn't want to anything masking that, you know, I didn't want to hurt myself. So I needed to know exactly. So I never took the pain, pain medicine. And then I was going to retire. It was my last year. I, I was, I was spending more time in the training room than I was playing. It seemed like the fun was kind of gone for the first time. I think it was my first time since I was 15 or 16 that I played a season and never had a dunk. And I was like, oh, this is not as fun as I remember. So um, I knew I was going to retire, but we were on a road trip. We were in uh, Oakland or San Francisco, and I had an emergency appendectomy, took me to the hospital, got out, we flew home. There was only like 10 games left in the season. So I was essentially done. I, that was it. I wasn't going to play anymore. And as soon as I got off the plane, one of our doctors gave me a prescription for Oxycontin. And he said, this, they say, this is good. And I was like, all right. So 
I got home and I don't even know why I took it. I think I do now. I, I just, I'm sure I was in mourning and grieving, not playing basketball anymore, but thinking I was at peace with it. And so I took that medication. And when I say I've taken all kinds of painkillers, Oxycontin is a monster. That's not, I don't even, that's a different kind of painkiller. And the second I took it, I knew within a day or two, I knew I was in love. I mean, it was that good. Mm. And it was, it was great from where I was, where I was at that time for a couple reasons. One, it really, man, it felt like it helped me out socially. I felt nicer to people that came up to talk to me. I felt more in, engaged and engaging. I felt smarter. I felt, um, I felt like I handled stuff around the house better, little minor inconveniences. That was really short lived because within, I mean, within weeks I was starting to take more and more and more. And within a year and a half, I was taking probably, probably 40, 45 Viking in a day and eight to 10 Oxycontin Whoa. as well. And I would just chew them up. I, I wouldn't take them with water. I would just chew them up to get them into my bloodstream faster. And they taste like shit and chalk. And it's awful. But it's a wonder. And it, again, had I been a drinker, dead, dead, dead. Yeah. No way you live through that. So, um, and if if I tried it, any of that now, you know, you go dead. It's just dead. I'd build up my my tolerance. But But at that time, I was taking about that much. And Danny Ainge our Danny Ainge uh, came to me and said, Hey man, he didn't say this cause he's a uh, Mormon, but I was going to say, he said, Hey, you're up. But he probably said, you're freaking up. Um, right. And what were you, you doing go, at the time? Gotta, were you still hanging I, around I, a team? I don't know what I was doing. I think he was talking about more from my personal life at home. Um, but you, know, you had our just family, retired. You weren't working I, yet. You were just hanging out. Right. I was just hanging out and just, he could tell I was, I was gaining weight. I was, uh, becoming less dependable all the time. You know, I'd say I was going to be someplace. I wouldn't get, get there till late. And I'd never, a bunch of stuff that I'd never done before in my life. I, there, I had never been in trouble ever. And that's why a lot of this is so hard. You know, my son, he lives with me now. He's 27 and he played High school ball is a really good high school player. He went to Ball State for a year, kind of got burned out. But when he got burned out, his mom and I, we divorced or we're going, starting to go through a divorce. And, you know, I think he really was homesick and came back. And then I got in trouble. And he just sent me a text the other day. He just said, hey, man, I, I know people are excited about seeing this. And if I act like I'm not, he said, it's, just because I just remember how shitty those times were, and I hate thinking about them. That I'm proud this of. This is the you. thirty for thirty that's you. coming out. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The thing. Yeah, anyway. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I know. Look, I don't think I'll be able to watch it. I hope. <laughs> I hope they don't watch it, but I'm sure they will. It's just hard. What's hard is you know everything you ever. I didn't grow up thinking this was what I was gonna. You know, this was my story, and I remember sitting in rehab and telling them, you know, this is not my story. <laughs> it's my story. It, it, it is, um, right. you know, you want, you want your story to be all good. And I guess we are, all of our stories are not 
all good, right? Yeah, it's not perfect. It's it's yeah. And it and it's and what's interesting is sort of trying to go back and figure out the steps that led to other things. And you know, we kind of skimmed over your NBA career, which, which was fantastic. You know, twelve years <laughs> in the NBA is a long time. It was time. fine. Uh, you, it was you fine. were the first ever player signed by the Hornets in the franchise's history. You were super popular yep. as a Hornets player. You were in the dunk contest twice as a six-four white guy. You know, hanging with yep. Dominique and Sean Kemp and all that. Um, mm-hmm. But you come down from that, and there's the natural depression that many players feel when they're like, okay, this is the first time in my life I don't have the the schedule and the repetition of of right. going to practice every day and playing. In addition to the introduction of this oxycontin that's just absolutely mm-hmm. thrilling for you at the time yeah. um tell me about those you know you're you're married you've got a couple kids you're yeah. having this this addiction problem and it took you mm-hmm. three times in in rehab to stick what were those first two times like why do you think you couldn't stay in it uh well i think the main thing was that i had to i had gone to rehab but i was still young you know i was 33 at this time you know, I came in the NBA at 19 or 20 and was done at 32. So, and I, again, I'd never been in trouble. Going to rehab was a humbling, humbling experience that first time because I'm in there with a lot of people who do actually know me. I was fresh out of playing and that was, it was really humbling. Uh, but when I got out, I had what I thought were, um, withdrawal. I hadn't had it the whole, really the whole time I was in rehab, but I got out and I had this, what I felt like was a pit in my stomach. I couldn't get rid of. And about six months later, I had to have another, I had to have a surgery to get a screw taken out of my wrist and they gave me Vicodin. I should have told the doctor that I'm not, uh, that I've got a problem with painkillers. I didn't. And he gave it to me and I took a Vicodin and immediately that pit went away in my Mm. stomach. And so uh, I get back on the Vicodin. I'm on it. Go back to rehab, rehab slash. It was kind of a weird deal. They flushed my system with, you know, to get opioids out of my system. That didn't take. And I'm back on, they put me on something called Suboxone. And so, um, the last time I went in, I, and I always had that pit when I came, just that feeling of withdrawal. And it, I, I didn't know, you know, the Suboxone took it away, but the Suboxone, just, uh, I took it for 10 years and you're not supposed to be on that longer than a few months. It's to withdraw yourself from opioids. And so, um, the last time I went to rehab, uh, they put me, they, I was detoxing. I got out of detox and immediately they had to send me to the hospital because my stomach was really up and, uh, you know, pain, pain, uh, on the floor in the fetal position type pain. They got me in there. They gave me, they ran a bunch of tests and came back and said, man, you've got crazy ulcers. Well, all we know now, ulcers, opioids cause ulcers. They also mask the pain of ulcers. And all of that time, I had ulcers and was masking it with that pain. And the Mm. second they gave me ulcer medication, Sarah, I was like a new person and I know that's not the way it goes for a lot of people. I've never had anything ever since that feels like what I remember that withdrawal feeling like. So I feel lucky in that regard, very lucky, but yeah, it's kind of pisses me off too that a doctor somewhere along the line didn't go, you know, let's, uh, 
Let's check and see if you got ulcers. Yeah. So yeah. when was the shoplifting incident? Was that before the the yeah. final rehab that, that stuck? Yes. Yes. 2014, maybe? Uh, two, yeah, 2014. Yes, yeah, exactly right. And, I, and I read I that you don't time. remember it. You, you genuinely I don't, don't really. remember it. I, well, I'll tell you, it's the truth. I, I don't, it's all real foggy, but I'll tell you what I do remember. I remember when they, I'd been uh, in a cell all day. I got a story for you in a second. Remind me to tell you, but um, okay. I, I'd been in a cell all day. And then finally they take me where two detectives were. And I still, I really didn't know. I didn't know what I was in, what I was doing there. I kept asking them and I, so I, I was kind of that out of it, but I tell you what I did know. The second they said, Hey, have you ever been to the Apple store in, you know, the location? And I said, lawyer. <laughs> uh oh, I did something. I'm gonna stop talking now. Is where you were at in that. That's exactly uh, right. But I, I thought, I, anyway, yeah. But it, it did. It kind of sobered me up. That, so the story I was gonna tell you was that, and I've never, I've never shared this actually, and I hadn't really thought of it in some time. But they were running a promo for that, that show that they're airing. Uh, tonight or at some some point and um it showed i've never watched the footage and i probably not going to be able to watch that thing tonight but i've not watched the footage of the surveillance footage of that thing but i did catch on a little preview that they showed it showed me being arrested and handcuffs and first of all handcuffs adds 50 pounds we all know that right (laughs) Um, (laughs) and uh here's the other thing that i saw I'd been in a cell all day and there's a guy as the first cell they put me in. There's a guy jerking off in the corner, completely naked. Oh No. All right. And then they take me and him. We, we're in a paddy wagon and we go downtown. They take us downtown. I get off. Uh, they book me. I'm in the jail cell by myself. And there's a little bullshit mirror in there. And I looked at myself and I'd just come, I, the news was out there. I'd just been on the news. And um, I looked at myself in the mirror, and I'm wearing, I've been a Nike guy my whole life for most of it. And I'm wearing a shirt that says, basketball never stops. <laughs> <laughs> and it was I'm not hoping. funny to me in that moment. Mm. It wasn't. <laughs> but, God damn, that's pretty funny. Yeah, of, of all things. Now. Yeah, it's really yeah. funny. <laughs> uh, um, so something that that you know you mentioned was you don't remember it, but it kind of like the combination of all of that, and then obviously getting the right diagnosis on the ulcers and everything else. It sort of comes together for you to say, okay, this is now the time that I need to get it all together. What did it look like cleaning yourself up and then figuring yeah. out what you wanted to do next? Yeah, you know. Um, that last time I really took my, my mental health seriously. I was, I mean, what was I going to do? I, I was, I was lost, completely lost. And so I had to kind of apply myself, thank goodness, a doctor, a therapist, I should say a therapist at the Brook where I went. Her name's Kim Peabody. She's a UK university, Kentucky grad. And man, I love that lady. 
she she worked with me the t- from the time I was there to this day. You know, I still call and talk to her about anything and everything. Uh, if I've got some issue, because life is not easy uh, for anyone. And, you know, I, I remember, I forget what movie it was. Somebody said, yeah, but I, I, I get depressed. I get sad. They said, yeah, everybody gets sad. He said, but I get real sad. And that's kind of how I feel um, at times. I do better with it now. I'm on, uh, you know, I, I take antidepressant medication and I, I work out. I had to lose a bunch of weight. I was probably 260 when I went to rehab and I, I would never weighed more than, you know, 200 my whole life. So I had to make a lot of changes, my diet. Um, but I, I knew that I had issues that I had to try to work through. And I think the main thing that came from it was a lot of trying to be introspective. And I'm not sure that I ever was ever for a day before any of that. Yeah. So it's 2014 when the arrest happens, when you, when you get into the rehab, it starts to click. Um, you start to work with, um, the state of Kentucky to actually help with with youth that are dealing with opioid addictions in 2017. There's an article about you in Sports Illustrated that's kind of talking about some of the stuff you struggle with and trying to get back on track. But it wasn't until the social media stuff that I think a lot of people outside of maybe Kentucky or the really diehard college basketball NBA fans started to hear about this former NBA star turned Internet guy. Um, and I love the fact that it's sort of beautifully poetic to be this viral college star before things go viral and then be viral again for something completely different. It's this very, you know, circular thing. But you didn't like the Internet at first. When you first got on social media, it wasn't your it wasn't yeah. your thing. Yeah. You know, really, I was on social media from about 2010 or 11. Jim Rome told me to get on. I got on. And, you know, within a few days, I had, I don't know, 50 or 60,000 followers just from basketball. And I tweeted out nothing but bullshit basketball and opinion shit and was mean and snarky and all that for a few years. Then I got in trouble. I wasn't on social, wasn't on for at least two years. And then I started kind of getting back. I got in trouble, trouble. Like I got arrested. Okay. Got it. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so, yeah. And so I wasn't on for a couple of years and then Really and truly, uh, and I don't want to gloss over this, Paul Archie from JMI, which he was with Major League Baseball forever. He's from Kentucky. He runs JMI, which is the media arm of University of Kentucky. And he called me just out of the blue. I was living in Los Angeles and said, hey, would you be interested in coming back here and just doing a pregame show for us and kind of doing some TV radio for our you know, basketball program? I was like, you got to be kidding me. Of course I would. Mm-hmm. And so I came back and everything I do and have done, UK and JMI, they, those guys have set the table. You know, I still, I work with NBA TV and do, you know, a lot of stuff with Turner. And I know that my UK stuff has set the table for all this. So I, I couldn't be more grateful. And that caused you to get back onto social media uh, because you were were working in media now and you discovered that you didn't want to be a dick anymore. Well, that, but also, uh, yeah, I came back on social media. Things are going, seem to be going great. And I just politically, uh, I think I had a bit of a meltdown. I just couldn't take what I was seeing. 
and I want it off of social media. And um, I'm I'm sure my people that, you know, pay me to do things, they weren't, didn't appreciate me turning off half the people with my political opinion. And so I really wanted off of it, but knew that, you know, you kind of need a social media presence in this day to do anything um, media wise or, or it seems. And so I, honest to goodness, I just stumbled on that stupid video of the dolphin and hitting the guy in the chest and thought to myself, <laughs> that's a charge. That's a charge. And tweeted it out. And of course, when you tweet something like that out, I'm only trying to appeal to people like yourself, you know, sports people or basketball people who know what a blocker charge is, who know what a blocker charge is. (laughs) And so there was no design on it being anything other than that. So it's a it's a video for those who don't remember this way back. It went around for a while. Guy on a paddleboard is, is yeah. paddle boarding. A bunch of dolphins are swimming beneath him, and one of them jumps up and just smacks him right off the paddleboard. And it's hilarious to ask blocker charge on that. Um, yeah, that, it kind of is. Yeah. So that's how it started. And then you got such an incredible response. You know, you're following doubles, and everybody thinks it's hilarious. Then were you like, all right, I'm going to look for other videos that could be considered a blocker charge? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought, well, all right, I'll put one out every few days and see how that goes. And then people started liking it. And then really, it, you, you you know, you hit a, a point or I did where, oh, man, it's just it's just gore. It's gore light. I at one point. Right. Some of yours I can't watch. <laughs> I know. Somebody said, what is your somebody said, what is your well, what's up with your Twitter? I said, all right, it's world star for white people. Yeah, right. Yeah, it really is. White people and animals. Right? Yes, yeah, like, animals. Yeah. But so yeah. at some point I was like, well, it's just you can't you can't show people just getting jacked up all the time. Yeah. And that's all it is. And then you, I thought, all right, let's add some other little things in here and see how that goes. And people liked it. So there's no real rhyme or reason to any of it, really. It's I'm just happy. I don't. Yeah, I don't happy. I don't have to show how stupid I am politically. Well, we have like we have at least three main categories. We have uh, this is the content I'm here for, which is you know heartwarming. We have block and charge, which is that we've made clear what that is, and then we have dogs, bruh, which is my dogs, bruh. Yeah, Yeah, mine um, too. Yeah. Um. So you've got your three categories, and I'm curious because when we were setting up this interview, you said you are not tech savvy. This is not your wheelhouse. So how does someone who's not tech savvy become the guy who shares all the videos online? You know what it is, honest to goodness, it's just I if and I've always been this way, whatever if it's something that I like and so you know, something I will apply myself toward, I can usually figure it out. And that and for for whatever reason, I figured out Twitter. Everything other than that, I have no idea. Like, you know, you, you were saying, Well, just download this and somebody asked me that and say, Well put a and I know we're, it's a little bit of a weird world right now. We're all kind of living remotely. But, yeah, I am the least tech-savvy person. I'm not mechanical in any uh, – I'll break something trying to fix it. Um, yeah, I, I could play basketball. That's it. I wasn't very good at anything else. <laughs> well, you are a good video curator. Now, how often oh, are you having stuff sent to you now? Because it feels like probably at this point you don't even have to go looking. I'm sure people are just tagging you in things left and right. Yeah, there's a there are a couple guys, one, and one's named Theo, one's named uh, Sander, and really never met them. We've created a little Twitter friendship. One of them lives in the <laughs> Netherlands. 
One of them lives in London and they're great guys. And for whatever reason, they, they, it's like they read my mind with the stuff that I like or that my my followers on that silly Twitter channel like. Um, so they do a lot of the heavy lifting at this point. Uh, other than that, I do try to find, you know, and I don't, I try not to use them solely, but there are, there's so many good accounts out there that I find stuff and I'll, you know, DM someone and be like, Hey, can I use this? And they'll be like, sure, share it, man. It'll get way more, you know, exposure. So it's fun. Uh, and yeah, it's just fun. That's all. I'm curious because there's a guy who made a name for himself, um, sort of aggregating content, posting videos and jokes and stuff, and he went by the name The Fat Jew. And he ended up getting a lot of backlash because people said, why don't you just credit the original video owner? Why are you pretending this is yours? Do you get backlash for that, or do people care if you post a video and you don't say where you got it? No, uh, no. Occasionally, I guess. Uh, you might get somebody, but for the most part, I try to clear it with them ahead of time, or we, you know, we will, uh, share each other's retweets, you know, kind of that kind of thing will trade off. So no, I try to stay away from that as much as possible. And most of the stuff that I show that that's, you know, really heartwarming stuff is, is stuff from people that, you know, they want that stuff out there. So Sure. No, I I really haven't, and you know I, I'm I hope I'm always quick to let everyone know, guys. This is not my content. This is right, all right. people just just sharing on social media. Yeah. So you've got blocker charge shirts for sale. You've got the kind of 30 minute show on Adult Swim that collects some of the best content that you find. And you're also doing something now in light of the coronavirus pandemic, where you're partnering your foundation with the Bluegrass Community Foundation in Kentucky. So your foundation helps young people with opioid issues. Uh, what is this partnership that you're doing? Oh, you're so, such a pro. Thank you, Sarah, <laughs> for mentioning all of that. Um, yeah, you know, a couple years ago, a buddy of mine who I grew up grew up with, uh, again, my childhood buddy from that I do the Blocker Charge show with, he, uh, we were sitting and we said, you know, let's uh, start this let's start a foundation, probably help a lot of people. So we started that up. I started doing, you know, quite a bit of speaking here and there around Kentucky and really different places around the country the last few years, just on opioids. And um, just uh, last week, we were sitting, even less than a week ago, he and I were sitting together. And uh, I said, hey, man, you know, watching the news, of course, and realizing how crazy what we have going on with the coronavirus is I said, Hey, I bet if we, if we could partner with someone around here, um, the opioid foundation with someone in Lexington, another nonprofit, we could probably do some good and raise some relief money for, you know, people who are going to need it. And he, David knows everyone. He called a buddy of his who I also know. And that's what this guy does is nonprofit stuff. So, he partnered us with Bluegrass Community Foundation. They've been in business for over 50 years. They have national uh, relationships. And, um, yeah, we raised in uh, just a couple of days, we raised over $150,000, probably had 2,500 or so donations come in. We gave some uh, grants away yesterday, totaling about 25000 here in Kentucky. And over the next 
four or five days, we'll give away another 125 at different places throughout the country, the hot spots that are, are really being affected right now. That's fantastic. That's really great. Um, what When you think about the like sort of joy that you bring people with your Twitter account, as silly as that sounds, but it's true, and how much you now traffic in sort of either funny or happy things, does it surprise you that, I mean, it, like you said before, you looked around at one point and said, this isn't my story. Are you looking around now and saying that this, this fits me more, or is it still just another incarnation of you that you're surprised about? Yeah, you know, I try not to think about it too much. And I'm honestly, I'm, I'm probably just so narcissistic that I'm just so into myself. I don't think about much of any of it, honest to goodness. <laughs> um, and so if I try to think too deep about any of that, I get really weirded out because every day still people come up to me and I'll be walking, you know, like right now I'm doing a lot of walking outside and um, people will come up or they'll stop across the street and want to say something. I'll take my headphone out and, and I really will forget. I'll think, Oh, I don't know this person. I should know who they are. And they'll say something like, sure liked watching you play. And so I get tricked every single day. I get tricked into, into, you know, just, I forget. I just forget that people, I don't know, that people will recognize me like that. That you're a famous basketball player who, you know. Yeah, a big has famous star, a big star. Transitioned into uh-huh. something else that people yeah. are, are loving. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like the jerk, rags to riches to rags. <laughs> You have better rhythm, though. I trust that you have better rhythm than the jerk. (laughs) Slightly better. Slightly, just slightly. Uh, Well, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Question number one. Uh, What's your desert island album? You can only have one. Uh, Prince Controversy. Ooh, nice. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has most contributed to your success? Uh, wow. Um, <laughs> quality would be um, being nice to people, which comes yeah. from my mom. That's a good one. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Um, my marriage. Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes. Are you usually administering or taking the punches? I've uh, had my share of both. (laughs) Uh, Number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Prince. Not today, because that would, yeah, 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 that would, but but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, Number six. Also, that's why I wear the number three. Oh, really? Oh, cool. He wore the number three. Yeah, hey, there you go. Uh, Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Um, I I go right, I don't, I'm sure they're probably being arrested, but I go right to a high school game where we're playing our arch rival, big game, big game. Fans are packed and referee handed me the ball, throw it inbounds, and I dribbled right in with it to half court before anybody realized what was going on. I didn't throw it no. inbounds. I did the Eric, Eric Bledsoe thing. Yeah. It is embarrassing, <laughs> although it like still happens in the NBA where dudes just start walking with it. I know. And like, oh, I forgot to dribble. <laughs> so you're yeah, not alone. It, you have a, <laughs> no, you're thinking about that timeout where you're whatever you're running. And yeah, the next yeah, play. You just, yeah. yeah, right. That's funny. 
Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? I want to be more patient. I'm impatient. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a good one. Number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Absolutely no more handshaking. Yes, that's right. Yes. Just finger guns, I would say, would be a good replacement uh, yeah, for not, a while. I think finger guns or you just give the coronavirus head nod, which is yep. a little, what's up? What's right, up? I love you. I love you. You love me. <laughs> Everything's good. Yeah. We're either going with finger guns or the sup. Or the, only, or only the that's right. Or the sup. That's <laughs> the right. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, who being in jail and not knowing what the rest of my life was going to hold. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Um, and then finally, what three words would you hope that people would use to describe you? Um, kind, competitive, and, um, improving. Oh, the perfect one. Uh, and finally, the bonus question, who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone that you think is funny or interesting or cool that I should talk to? Um, I know a couple people, but I'm going to give you the big name first. Uh, do they have to be sports people? No, it could be anybody. Jimmy Marsden, James Marsden. Okay. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Uh-huh. There you go. Um, do you know him personally? I'll, yes, that's a friend of mine, personal Perfect. friend. Well, then I'll get yeah, his info from can, you. We can hook, uh-huh, we can hook <laughs> that up. Um, Josh Hopkins. Josh Hopkins, who's James, one of James' good buddies. Josh is my buddy. He's uh, nice. an actor in Hollywood. But, uh, yeah, so they're, yeah, I think Perfect. him. I'm trying to think who else. I'll think. But Those yeah, are two good James ones for, for sure. Now. Yeah. Yeah, and he's a big um, sports fan. This was really fun, Rex, and uh, especially after I happened to have just watched that 96 Bulls Heat series where you had a, a baby <laughs> mullet working and, you, you know, you're so fired up and you were just exactly the kind of player that the other team would hate and everybody that was uh, rooting for your team would just love the energy and the, and the passion and everything. So this was really fun. Thanks, Sarah. It was very fun for me, too, uh, talking about this stuff that I haven't talked about, uh, especially this in depth. It's painful, but it's also therapeutic. So I thank you a lot. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, people who don't make an effort to get the hell away from me when I'm walking my dogs. I mean, I'm taking my dog into the street like 10 times per block to avoid passing you on the sidewalk. And none of y'all look remotely ready to take a single step out of line to give me six feet. I'm walking in the street and you're not even moving a foot. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. I mean, how many times does someone have to tell you social distancing, six feet or more? And why not make it more? Why not make it 10 just to be safe? Quit making me send you dagger eyes or yell at you. I mean, literally today I said to a guy approaching me when I had nowhere to back up to, whoa, 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 six feet. And he looked at me like a crazy person. How have you not heard this, sir? Six feet or more. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Don't be a moron. It's not that hard to stay six feet away, and it's so necessary. You want to stay home 23 hours a day and still get sick because you couldn't keep at least six feet away for the one hour that you went outside? Don't be a fool. There. I fixed it. And Philly Tar Heel 524 has a listener dilemma for me to fix. 
He says people who stay on their phones having a conversation while they're at a register at a store. Might be a she, actually. Philly Tar Heel 524. I'm not sure. They said that. And I have to admit, I've been guilty once or twice, but only because I had to run an errand while on a conference call. I had no choice. My day was so packed. And I always apologize, and I always feel terrible about it. But yeah, absolutely should not happen. You should not carry on a phone conversation while you're checking out at a store. It's super disrespectful to the people working. And I think, you know, so many times these days we get so caught up in our phones and we've kind of lost the ability to interact with other people with courtesy and kindness and respect. We get caught up in what we're doing and try to multitask too much and... Honestly, it may be naive, but I really would like to think that when we all get released back out into the wild, eventually we'll be a little more thankful for those face-to-face experiences, a little kinder to each other, a little bit more, um, I don't know, we'll remember that all the people that we interact with on a daily basis are people too, and uh, treat them a little better. Fingers crossed, at least. If you got a dilemma for me to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, and review to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Leave the dilemma in your review and maybe I'll fix it. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 